Well, it is uh, great to be back together with you this weekend. Uh, we're going to continue through uh, the book of Philippians. We're making good progress, I think. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 2, chapter 3. You can go to 2 first if you like, that's fine. Uh, last week, I'm thankful we had uh, Craig Robinson come share with us. Uh, and he walked us through the first half of Philippians chapter 3. And, and he definitely challenged me as I listened to the podcast this week before I put it online uh, to look at my own life and look at the, the badges of honor that I hide behind. We looked at that text where Paul says, you know what? If anyone has reason to boast in anything, I had it all, but I've given it all up for Jesus. And so you can, uh, I'm thankful for him. You can keep praying for him, his wife Zoe, and their, their little one-year-old daughter Blythe as they keep uh, moving on, as they're, they're working at the, the Karen church plant here in town, striving to make much of Jesus in the Bow Valley as well. So this week, we will continue into the second half of Philippians chapter 3. And, and as I just quickly alluded to, Paul, in the first half of the chapter, has just given us a look at, at his own passionate, all-consuming desire to know more of Jesus. And then he comes into this section that we're going to look at today, and he tells the church that, that he's not slowing down, he's not giving up, he's not stagnating, but he is on a full run after Christ, still. And so what we get here in these verses is some great instruction on how we too can grow in our spiritual maturity. And just before I read the text for us, a quick note. These verses can and probably should rattle us a little bit. They should make us uncomfortable, they should stir something up, they should provoke something in us. And that's okay. We should not feel condemned by these verses, but we probably should feel convicted. And there's a massive difference between those two. As followers of Jesus, condemnation is, is a lie of the enemy. Romans 8 one says, therefore, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But conviction is evidence of God still at work in us. It's evidence of God showing his love for us and saying, hey, listen, hey, you need to deal with this thing in your life. And Paul's talked about how God is still at work in us already in both chapters 1 and 2 of Philippians. So let me read for us Philippians 3, and I'll read 12 to 21. Again, I've mentioned for the last number of weeks, the verses aren't going to be on the screens because I want you looking at them in front of you and with a pencil or highlighters or however you like to do that is fine as well to see what's going on in these passages. So let me read uh, Philippians 3, 12 to 21 for us. Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. 
God, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for the example of Paul and the example of Jesus that we have discovered so far in Philippians. I pray that as we dig in here, that you would stir things up in us, that you would speak to us. We trust that you are still the God who speaks, so speak to us this morning. I ask you that you would remind us of the gospel and all that you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump in. I think in this passage there are at least five challenges for us in growing in our spiritual maturity. And there uh, was a handout at the back. Hopefully some of you got it. If not, the points will be on the screen. So the first challenge we see here at the beginning of both verses 12 and 13, Paul says, we have to humbly acknowledge that we have not yet arrived. Paul is really clear at the start here. He says, listen, I haven't attained this yet. He's talked about knowing more of Christ and being found in him and, and all this wonderful stuff from the last couple of verses uh, before here, verses kind of 7 through 11 in chapter 3. He says, I haven't got it yet. I'm still, I'm still running. I'm still chasing it down. I'm still longing to be more like Jesus. And he emphasizes by saying it twice. And he's speaking out against what some of the teachers had been teaching in Philippi and probably some things that we still hear today, that the goal is some sort of perfection. And we see it maybe with our kids, and maybe as kids we remember to get your nice Sunday best on, pay attention, don't make too much noise. Like that, forget it. Noise is okay. That legalistic perfection is not the goal. He's speaking out against that here. So what we have in this text is we have Paul, Paul the Apostle, who has just said in the verses preceding the ones I read, I had everything. If anyone had any reason to boast, I had more reason to boast. And I've given it all up. I've given everything up for the name of Jesus. And he goes on and says, but I'm not there yet. I've done all this stuff and it's great, but I'm not there yet. I'm still passionately pursuing this king. There's still progress to make. And so what he's doing is, thankfully, identifying as and identifying with all of us normal Christians and fellow Christians who struggle with stuff. He doesn't want them to think that he's perfect or superior. He's just one of us striving to know more of Jesus. And some of the things he's written in this letter and other letters would leave us thinking, you know what, I am never going to reach what Paul had. But this is a great encouragement to me, knowing full well that I haven't arrived yet. I can identify with Paul and acknowledge, you know what, I'm not there yet. God's still at work in me. There's still stuff to be shaved off and stuff to help me follow Jesus better. This is something that mature Christians do. The second thing he teaches us in verses 12 to 14 is to to passionately pursue a greater knowledge of Christ. Lots of us, I think, can identify with that first one that Paul said, I'm not there yet, no problem. But lots of us also use that as an excuse to kind of give up, to kind of coast along in our faith. You know what, maybe I'll get to that point someday. I've got a few years to go, maybe then I'll get there. But look at Paul's example again to us. He said, you know, I'm not there yet, but, verse 12, I press on. I'm reaching out to Christ. I'm making every effort in these things. Verse 13, I'm, I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm straining or I'm reaching forward to what's ahead. And verse 14, I will uh, press on. I pursue this goal. I pursue this prize. Paul is not coasting to the finish line here. And if anyone, wouldn't he have a reason to just coast for the last little bit of his life? 
He's traveled all over the places. He's planted churches everywhere. He's put in all this time. He's been, he's been beaten. He's been persecuted. He was, he was stoned and somehow didn't die. He had all this, this measure of stuff he's invested in the kingdom. He's now sitting in a Roman jail cell, not sure how many days he has left. Yet he says, I press on. I pursue. I'm chasing after this goal. I want to know Jesus more. Three things I think we can notice in these couple verses, 12 to 14. First, this, this growth and maturity takes a passionate pursuit. It takes effort to grow in maturity. This is something that we can't just sort of, again, slide or coast into or, or passively have happen to us. Several places in the New Testament, there are examples where writers use disciplined athletic imagery to describe what it takes to grow in Christ-likeness. This past week or so, there were uh, World Cup and Team Canada trials, biathlon trials up the hill. Nobody who was competing there decided two weeks before, you know what, I, I've got skis. Let's go see what we can do. Right there, these are disciplined athletes working towards this goal. Uh, elsewhere, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, hey, run this race in such a way to win the prize. Be focused. Pay attention to what you're doing. Have a goal in mind. A little bit later in that text, he says, I, I do not run as one who runs aimlessly, or I don't box like one just beating the air, but there's, there's a point here. There's discipline. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 2, the writer there says, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And run with endurance, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That whole book of Hebrews is a book on perseverance. And so these two writers, Paul and the author of Hebrews, are under no illusions that the Christian life is is one that can be lived passively or effortlessly. If you want to grow in maturity, you've got to put the work in. You've got to have passion and discipline. And to be clear, this, this... Passion and effort isn't our way to earn God's love. It doesn't earn us anything. It's only Jesus' work on the cross that makes us perfect, makes us righteous. But effort is a good word for us to use. It takes effort, it takes practice, it takes discipline as we pursue maturity as disciples, or as another writer I'm reading a lot of lately calls uh, disciples as apprentices of Jesus. If you are apprenticing for someone, you got to put the work in, right? You don't just let them do everything and then you get your stamp at the end. I don't think that's how it works. So effort is a good word for us as obedient followers of Jesus. The second thing this pursuit requires, we see in verse 13, is both forgetting and reaching. Look what Paul says in verse 13. He says, I forget what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. And so as we mature, this means both of those things. We need to both forget and we need to be reaching and striving and leaning forward as well. Now every runner or biker or skier or whatever knows that you can, you can look back over your shoulder a little bit, but if you do that too much, you're in big trouble. We were skiing up at Sunshine yesterday, and so we've, my wife and I, we've got two little kids, and so we put one of us at the engine, one of us as the caboose, and try and keep the two kids in the middle to try and you know, limit the damage. And so when I'm leading... Every once in a while, I turn around to make sure that, you know, I've got those little tracks behind me still. But if I stand and stare back, it doesn't take long before I hit a bump or a tree or something, and it does not end well for me. So we don't want to be focused on what's behind. When we talk about forgetting what's behind, commentator Peter O'Brien notes that to forget means to neglect or overlook or care nothing about. 
So he says, Paul would not allow either the achievements of the past, which God has wrought, or for that matter, his failures as a Christian to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the finish line. In this sense, he forgets as he runs. I like that phrase. I like it a lot. He forgets as he runs. Often, I think we get too focused on our past and we overvalue what's there. Now, for sure, our past affects our our present and our future, but our past doesn't determine our future because the gospel is so much more powerful than that. Think about it again. Uh, This is quiz time, so feel free to answer the question. Who's writing the letter to the Philippians? Who's our author here? Paul. Where in our New Testament do we first see Paul show up? Acts 6-ish? 6, 7, 8. And what, what's happening? What's going on in Acts when Paul shows up for the first time? He's holding the cloaks of the guys who were stoning, murdering Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And he's approving of it, the text tells us, right? Paul went from that to writing 13 books of the New Testament. And at no time in any of his letters or anything do we see Paul saying, you know what? I was a disaster. I'm damaged goods. God cannot use me. And I think this is really important. And I I don't think we can make too big a deal out of this. We need to follow Paul's lead and forget as we run. Tony Marita says this, helpfully, uh, every Christian has failed God at some point. And we could list the failures of many of our biblical heroes. There's only one who has never failed, and that, of course, is Jesus. So we must, not, uh, must also not overinterpret, forget about it, to mean avoiding uh, making a situation right or not asking for forgiveness. We need to deal with sin. But if you've been forgiven and sought to make things right, then forget and run. Don't let Satan bring up accusations against you if Christ has forgiven you for those things. Flee to Christ, remember the gospel, and press on. Naomi and I, my wife and I did a a discipleship course in South Africa when we were first married, about 2008, uh, and one of the videos we watched was of an Argentine preacher named Juan Carlos Ortiz. There's something about preachers with accents, we'll say that. And so he had this this Spanish, sort of, not quite broken English, but, you know, whatever, and so he was teaching, this was an old video already, and so he was preaching behind this big wooden platform, and he had, had the mic with the big foam thing on the end, as they used to do, right? And so he was talking about this, if you bring your junk, if you bring your sin to Christ, he stamps it, and he took the mic, dunk, 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 which of course echoed through the whole room, and the sound guy probably said, Juan Carlos, what are you doing that's going to wreck our mic? He stamped it paid, and it's paid. And the devil can never bring that back and show that to you again because it's been paid. The only thing that comes back is is the photocopy, is the fake, the counterfeits, the fake accusations. Don't let Satan bring accusations against you if Christ has already forgiven you. And so we follow Paul's leads and we forget forget our, our misdeeds, we forget our failures, but we also forget our past achievements. Again, consider Paul. He's one of the greatest church planters of all time, probably, and yet we never see him resting on his reputation. Of course, it's it's good for us to look back and see where we've come from, to look and see where God has been faithful, to see where where God has led us, where we've had those moments of, of change where God has spoken clearly, where God has blessed us. 
but we don't look back and use those past victories as an excuse to coast now. And I think it's easy to fall into this for us. And I would suggest our Western culture fosters this by having created a, a culture of retirement. It says, hey, listen, you put your time in in the office for the rest of your life. Just do whatever you want to do. Just play golf and whatever else. Drink coffee. But where our culture says, just take this time for yourself. Do this for yourself. Paul says, I count all of that stuff as dung for the sake of Christ. And I've heard this several times in churches that I've been a part of and led where, you know, I put in my time in the nursery. Someone else can do it. I've put in my time. I'm just going to start showing up on Sundays. It's heartbreaking. We can't let our past work, our past service, our past victories, our past faithfulness coax us into an unhealthy complacency in the present. Well, how do we do this? Paul coaches us this way in verse 13. He says, listen, there's, there's one thing I do. Here's the one thing. Focus on this one thing. And I appreciate this about Paul. He can be a one-thing guy, especially since I created a handout with five points and a few sub-points. There's more than one thing there. But he's, he's pretty focused here. He says, here's the one thing. Passionately pursue Christ. Forget failures and achievements and strain to know Jesus more. So another pastor, C.J. Mahaney, asked this super helpful question based on this idea of the one thing. He says, what's one change that you could make in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? I think often we get so hung up on, okay, I'm a disaster in all of these areas, and I will never reach this giant standard here, so I have to either change all of these at once or just give up. What if you change one thing, one little thing? Similarly, we could ask uh, the same question based on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. What sin or one habit or what activity could you throw off in order to run the race better? Or what's, what's one thing you can start doing, one simple thing you can start doing now that you aren't yet doing? One writer says, don't estimate the power of making just one simple change. David Paulson notes that change in one area affects every area of our lives. And usually we don't think this way. We tend to think of our spiritual growth in boxes. Finish with box A, move on to box B. But when you change one area of your life, by God's grace, it moves through all of your life. As we wrestle with this, consider how you spend your time and your money. Because these things often reveal where our hearts are and what we're pursuing, what the one thing is for us. One of the books I'm reading right now uh, cited a study that said the average male today has played about 10,000 hours of video games by the time they turn 21. Now, this is not an anti-video game sermon. I'm not against video games. But when I read that, boy, was I convicted. Because I wrestled with how many hours I've spent playing games. Some are you know, great opportunities to connect with people who live in other cities and friends from back home or whatever else, or considered how many hours I've spent scrolling through social media feeds. They say that 10,000 hours, it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Anything, right? 10,000 hours invested in something, you, that's, you're considered expert level. And so having that stat in my back pocket, at 37, how many expertises could I have if I had been passionately pursuing things of eternal worth? This is not a guilt trip. 
to those who are creeping up on that 10 or 20 or 30,000 hours. But this is an opportunity for us to refocus. So Paul said we can grow in maturity if we acknowledge that we haven't arrived yet, if we passionately pursue a greater knowledge of Christ. And in 30 says we should never lose the wonder of the gospel. And we see this in verse 12, the second half, and verse 14 as well. Verse 12, he says, you know what, I I press on to take hold of it because I've been taken hold of by Jesus. His heart is just wrapped up in what Jesus is doing. And in verse 14, he says, "I, I press towards the goal for the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul, in all that he did, never lost his wonder of the gospel, and we shouldn't either. As we grow in Christian maturity, it it means going deeper in the gospel, but never beyond it. And I think it's maybe a product of our culture, but maybe not. There's a tendency for every one of us to think at some point, we get it. Okay, I get the gospel. Jesus, cross, resurrection, what's next, pastor? But I was listening to a podcast this week, and and the pastor spent uh, about 18 minutes, the, the last third of his sermon, just unpacking what the gospel is out of 1 Corinthians 15, and just four verses in 1 Corinthians 14. And he led into it and said, you know what, the gospel is the most beautiful thing. It should be the most beautiful thing in your life. It it never has a bottom. It never has a finishing point. It never has a conclusion in regard to its application. And we never move on from the gospel. Tim Keller similarly says, the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity and that you finish point A and move on to B and then C, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. It is everything. And we can and hopefully will spend a lifetime mining the depths of all that the gospel means for us. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said in chapter 2 there, As you have received Christ Jesus in the Lord, walk in him. Now the Colossians there, he was ready to confront something with them, and they, they were trying to move on to something else. They said, listen, okay, Paul, gospel, we got it. Next thing, we're going to do this. But Paul writes and says, there isn't anything else. There is no next thing. Just keep digging in here. Just as you receive Jesus desperately in faith, keep walking in him. Keep looking to him. Keep treasuring his grace. Keep relying on his power. In Philippians here, they, they face the threat of these, again, these, these false teachers who are promoting a, a, a maturity that was divorced from grace. And so in verse 16, Paul says, let us hold true to what we have attained. Keep the main thing the main thing. Stay focused on the gospel and marvel at God's work of salvation through Christ Jesus. Because we've been called with a heavenly call, Paul says in verse 14. And God has poured out his grace for us. Jesus has come to pay for our sin and reconcile us to God. And it's, it's because Jesus has taken hold of us that we want to now make every effort to hang on to this and know him more and go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. One writer concludes, we have been delivered out of death and from destruction because Jesus rescued us. And so now in turn, we in turn embrace him as our glorious, gracious savior. Never lose the wonder of his rescuing love. The fourth thing Paul teaches us here in verses 15 through 19 is to follow cross-centered, heavenly-minded examples. Now throughout this letter, we've seen that Paul has highlighted the idea of who you spend your time with matters. Who you imitate matters. Imitation is is a huge theme and key to Philippians. And so we've seen Paul use himself as an example In chapter 2, he he pointed to Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples, and of course, Jesus as our ultimate example in the beginning of chapter 2. 
And so now once again, Paul has told them his own passion, his own heart for the gospel, and he challenges them to imitate him as well, as well as others who are following that same example. And then he warns them too that there are those who are cross-denying, earthly-minded examples of what they need to avoid. So let's look at how he compares and contrasts those two. In verse 17, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, Jim Rohn a a while ago said, uh, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Maybe you've heard that before. And I would suggest that in our day, this extends not only to the people that we're in the room with most of the time, but also who we let influence us on social media or the blogs we read or whatever else. There are professional influencers online, right? No question we are influenced by who we give our time to, who we allow to speak into our lives. And so Paul says, make sure you're following faithful examples. So who are those? What might they look like? If we look at even just what Paul has been teaching us here in Philippians, the faithful example would be those who live out things like putting the needs of others ahead of their own. Those who uh, go after unity instead of creating division. Those who don't grumble and complain and argue. And those who are pouring out their lives for the gospel. Now we absolutely need good, sound doctrine teaching. But we need to be around people who live it out as well. As we've said, Christianity isn't just taught, it's also caught. It rubs off on people around you. And they can rub off on us. Tony Marita expands this a little bit as well, where he says, while it's not an issue mentioned in Philippians, we can apply this idea to marriage. In a culture that's filled with broken marriages and distorted views of marriage, we really need godly marriages on exhibit before our young people. Many haven't even seen, haven't really seen a healthy marriage lived out. In addition to marriage, many have never seen evangelism done well. They know that they should do it, but they don't really know how. And so if that's you, he says, attach yourself to someone who's doing it and go with them. Watch them. Hang out with them. Find faithful examples and watch them. Follow those who are showing you what it looks like to live out the Christian life in other ways too, including prayer, giving, showing your neighbor love, and studying the Bible. Find some deceased mentors. Read the biographies of the saints of old and find fresh encouragement from their way of life. Think of who are the five people, the five attitudes you're allowing to influence you the most. I just finished a book uh, about a week ago or so called uh, Something Needs to Change by David Platt. And he's he's an author and a preacher and a writer that I kind of come in and out of and sometimes I get distracted by other things. But I come back to him and and all of a sudden I read this fantastic little book that just came out. Uh, And then he's he's on my Facebook feed a little bit more and he's he's just a, a solid Bible preacher. And as I hear him speak... And I read his book, I think, I need more David Platt in my life. I need this. this is a faithful example of a pastor that I can follow. So who, who are those people for you, for us? The challenge is to find someone who has been captured by the gospel and captured by the upward call of God in Christ and then spend time with them. Ask them to go for coffee or read their books and listen to their podcasts. Meet them, meet together regularly to spur one another on in faith. Have meaningful spiritual conversations. And the goal in all this is to grow in our faith and to become more like Jesus. He also says in verses 18 and 19 that there are uh, people that we should avoid. He says to avoid the patterns of pretenders and earthly-minded people. He says to uh, find people to follow, 
but also make sure that you aren't following people that you shouldn't be following. And I think maybe one of the most important pieces we need to, to look at before we get into these couple verses is that he says, I've, I've told you about these people before, and I do again with tears in my eyes. These ones he's about to talk about break his heart. And so maybe as a side note for us today, uh, people who don't yet know Jesus break God's heart, and so they should break our hearts too. I've heard it said, lost people matter to God, so they should matter to us. That's, that's the message of Luke 15 as well, especially. Because our role as apprentices, disciples, fully devoted followers of Jesus is to, to go and make more followers, to draw more people into the kingdom. And so these people break Paul's heart. These people who have, who have missed the heart of the gospel should break our hearts as well. Now, we're not really sure who specifically these enemies of the cross, as Paul calls them, are. But the best guess we have is that that they're probably those who make some sort of a Christian profession, but in reality, they're actually opposing the gospel. They're deceivers and pretenders. They're people who put on the Christian show as a leader, but in reality, their leadership misses the cross. Marita, again, says, Enemies of the cross don't talk about the cross as their greatest boast, and they don't want to take up their cross and participate in the fellowship of of sharing in Christ's suffering. Their ethic isn't consistent with their profession, and so Paul warns us not to be drawn away by such people. Because they're making a, a false profession of the gospel and are misrepresenting the gospel, Paul says they're headed for destruction. And he goes on to say that they're proud of values that are opposed or antithetical to the gospel. He says, their God is their belly. He's saying they, they serve their appetites. They're only out to please themselves in whatever way they can. And they make and, and break and bend rules according to what brings them the most pleasure. He says their glory is their shame. They, they show off things that they should actually be ashamed of. They celebrate things that offend God and should be avoided. Uh, one more time, I think, from Tony Morita. He says, don't follow the examples of those who glory in things like sexual sin and greed and disrespect and laziness, as we often see in our culture. He says, even though sex before marriage is prevalent and considered normal, it's still shameful. Even though we call a strip club a gentleman's club, it's still shameful and depraved. Even though marriages break down because money matters more than a sacred covenant, resist this shameful pattern. Even though laziness is viewed as a personality trait and is displayed regularly in our sitcoms, it's wrong. In Proverbs, laziness is wickedness, not something to be accepted. Even though pornography is present and accessible, you shouldn't participate in this shameful, secretive work of darkness. By participating in such practices, you not only deaden your own soul, that's significant, but you also perpetuate more sin because sin always affects others. He says, don't worship the God of your stomach and don't glory in shame. Lift up your eyes. Find the superior joy that Paul has been describing in this letter. Press on to know Christ. Get your vision of life from Scripture and submit your whole life to the whole of the Bible in order to glorify God and flourish as you are intended to flourish. The last thing Paul says is that they're focused on earthly things. The one who is who's passionately pursuing Jesus can, of course, enjoy earthly things. God had made all sorts of things for us to enjoy in this world. But our focus needs to be on the eternal things. Things of eternal importance. Jesus, his cross, his resurrection. And again, remember, Paul isn't angry with the ones he's just described here. He weeps for them. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of the C.S. <clears throat> excuse me, C.S. Lewis quote, 
where he says, you know, we are half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. But instead, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for these things. And so when we look at our lives, when we see ourselves settling for mud pies, we see those around us who are, who are settling for mere earthly things, may our hearts break and may we too be stirred to action. So we need to find and follow cross-centered, heavenly-minded examples. Finally, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, live in light of your true citizenship. Again, Paul wraps up this section reminding them and us once again that this world is not our home. We've been created with eternity in our hearts. Remember who he's writing to. Philippi was a Roman colony. When people walked around Philippi, they looked and said, hey, this looks a lot like Rome. This reminds us of Rome. And so Paul is saying, listen, you may be Roman citizens living here, but you have a greater citizenship, and that is of heaven. And so when people come into your gatherings, when people come into our gatherings as the church, they should be seeing little bits of heaven. The church exists as little colonies or embassies on earth of the kingdom of heaven. And so when people come and they see Jesus' disciples or Jesus' apprentices, they should get little glimpses of heaven. So our goal and role of the church is to reflect God to those around us, to help people see who God is and what he's done and what he's like. We show them the king and point them to his kingdom. When people look at us, they should see little reflections of Jesus. The way we organize our lives, our lives, our time, our money, our relationships, everything should point them to something much greater than just ourselves. And I hope that that's true of me and my life, as I too, like Paul, press on and press forward towards the goal of knowing Christ more. In Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis writes, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. A little later he goes on and says, It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they have become so ineffective in this world. That stings a little bit, Mr. Lewis. May we have that, that, that vision of our citizenship in heaven. May our eyes be, be on the kingdom of heaven, on eternity. May we be focused on not the next 40 to 80 years, but the next 40 to 80 billion years. Eagerly awaiting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says. Now lots of people over the years have thought themselves to be saviors, have taken on the title of Lord. Caesar did. Caesar is Lord. is something that would have been said all over the place in Philippi but not one of them have made it out of this life alive. Only Jesus did that. Only Jesus is the true Savior, the true Lord. And someday we will see him. Someday we will stand face to face with him. And on that day, verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So since that day is coming, it's closer than ever before, has to be, Let us make every effort, forgetting what's behind, leaning forward into what's ahead, striving to grow in maturity by humbly acknowledging we haven't arrived yet, by passionately pursuing a greater knowledge of Christ, by never losing a wonder of the gospel, by finding and following cross-centered, heavenly-minded examples, and living in light of our true citizenship. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning, for this text. I trust that you have spoken to us, through it. 
Uh, I ask that you would give us ears to hear it, that you would remind us of who we are and all that we are in you. Uh, I pray that maybe just one of these five points would jump out, maybe loudest to us, to be the one thing we work on this week. We thank you that, that you love us so much. Jesus, thank you that you came as you read to open our service to be our example, that you, the, the full glory of God was pleased to dwell within you and that you are our example of how to rightly relate to God and others in creation. And that you went to the cross, you took our sin, you took our rebellion, you took our disobedience to the cross and you paid the price for that. And that that wasn't, I thank you God that that's not the end of the story, but three days later you raised Jesus from the dead, conquering our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death, so that we can be found as true citizens of the kingdom of heaven, adopted and grafted into your family. And as we're about to transition to the communion table, Jesus, we thank you for your work. As we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim you as Lord over our lives until you come again. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.